This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Tucked into the northwest corner of the state, this is a place blessed with unique geography. Unlike most spots along the Appalachian chain, which have gently sloping mountains, here the elevation plunges more than 2,000 feet in less than half a mile. The result is the Blue Ridge Escarpment, a dramatic feature that the Cherokee tribes in the area gave a special name. That's the Blue Wall, as translated by Garfield Long Jr., a tribal linguist with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. With such rugged terrain, plus abundant rainfall, it's no surprise that Lake Hartwell country has incredible waterways. This includes the Chattooga River, a federally designated wild and scenic river that Outside Magazine regularly calls out as one of our favorite paddling destinations. It's one of the longest free-flowing rivers in the southeast, and it provides visitors spectacular scenery as it plummets through the mountains. Some sections offer thrilling whitewater for experienced rafters and kayakers, including the infamous Bull Sluice Rapid. But there are also tamer sections for those just getting started. There's also great trout fishing, sandy beaches, and easy access to some incredible waterfalls. To learn more about all the adventures to be found in Lake Hartwell country, from hiking and cycling to horseback riding and camping, go to lakehartwellcountry.com, because South Carolina is just right. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. It was about a decade ago that Outside Magazine started publishing stories that looked into the science of why being in wild places is good for us. At the time, just four years after the first iPhone was released, people were beginning to have concerns about our relationship with the technology, and screens in particular. Today, of course, that concern has become a full-blown panic. As we reported on this show last year, Doctors have begun prescribing time in nature as the best possible treatment for a growing list of ailments, from anxiety and obesity to attention deficit disorder and high blood pressure. Learning how to manage our relationship with technology and to spend more time outdoors in an increasingly busy and crowded world is something we think about a lot at Outside, which is why we were so excited when we heard about a new audio series by Sydney, Australia-based journalist Sarah Allily called Brain on Nature. Sarah was in a pretty bad accident, suffering a traumatic brain injury that left her unable to handle a lot of everyday tasks. As she would find out, the only way for her to get better was to go outside. A lot. It's an intensely personal story, but one that offers powerful takeaways for anyone seeking balance in the modern world. Today, we're delighted to bring you the first two episodes in the series. I'll let Sarah take it from here. This is what it felt like after the accident. My brain felt like I'd pushed it to the limit. It was like I'd been studying a really hard subject. Like my brain was stretched to capacity. When I first get my audio recorder to make this podcast, I try it out in our backyard with my daughter, Emerald. Yeah, I was thinking that maybe 
can't believe how loud the traffic and neighbours and aeroplanes are when I listen back. Normally our yard's pretty quiet. I asked the sound guy that sold me the recorder. He reckons the traffic's actually always loud, but our ears, or our brains, are used to it. We know it's background, so we cancel it out. We've got good at just honing in on what we need to listen to. After the accident, I can't do that anymore. Instead, my brain's like the audio recorder, picking up everything. It's all the same volume. It's overwhelming. I think the first time I'd even heard that you'd had the accident was that you'd posted a picture of yourself on Facebook. I wake up on the road in intense pain. I don't know what's happened. Who are these people? Where am I? Why is my right shoulder killing me? I try to get up. Strangers tell me not to. And I messaged you and you said you'd been in a bike accident. And I remember thinking how awful you looked and that it seemed that you didn't realise how serious it appeared. I'm on a stretcher. I don't remember the ambulance arriving or being lifted inside it. I scream out in pain. The paramedics can't get the morphine into me quickly enough. My veins are useless. The paramedics frustrated with me because I'm complaining so much. It took a few seconds to figure out what was going on, you know, because my first thought was that it was some sort of prank or that it was, I imagined that it was someone like standing on the side of the street and you'd had an accident rather than, like all these thoughts went to my head of, so if you're on the ambulance, how did you know to ring me? Was it like her telling you to ring me? My stretch is parked against a wall in the hospital corridor. The morphine starts working, but the cannula keeps falling out. I'm in a bed looking at a ceiling in the corner of the emergency room. The morphine makes me nauseous. I keep vomiting. The anti-nausea IV falls out again. The nurses try other veins. The shoulder pain just keeps coming back. I don't think I spoke to you on the phone while you were in the ambulance. But eventually, obviously, I did because you said don't come right away. So... I was very confused and I was a bit obsessed that I didn't want the kids to see me like that because my face was all scratched up. So I kept saying to the doctors, when do you think you're going to release me? Like my partner wants to come and visit, but I won't get him to come and visit until I'm actually ready to go. (laughs) And he kept, he must have thought it was kind of odd and they would be like, yeah, I don't know when you're going to be released. And they kept saying, 
do you have any family? Is anyone going to come and visit you? Come, do you have anyone that's going to come and see you? And I kept saying, oh, I'm just waiting until I'm ready to go. <laughs> and so then I think what happened is you eventually just rung and said, uh, the kids want to see you, we want to see you, we're just going to come. I'm so out of it from the shock, the morphine and the head injury that I didn't realise how serious this is. No one does. I'm deliriously ignorant. I don't know that my life is about to change forever. I have no idea that I shouldn't be on my phone texting people with the news. I text backwards and forwards with my friend Miriam to update her. No, I'm still in hospital, not sure when I'll be home. Yeah, still come for dinner tonight. I'm injured, I'm on drugs, I need someone to take my phone off me. Sure, later, I'm just being wheeled in to have a CT scan of my head. I'll call you back when I'm done. What I don't know is that my brain is injured. The nurses and doctors know I have a head injury, that I'm concussed, but they don't know how my brain is failing me. Uh, yeah, you seemed okay. You seemed fine. You did have a couple of scratches and some abrasions, and I think your arm was in a sling or something like that. After a few scans and x-rays, I'm discharged about 5pm. The doctor warns me that if I get a headache when I try to read or watch anything, I should stop immediately. He insists no work for at least a week, not even emails. Luckily, I've just wrapped up a big project, so I don't need to hand over any work. Miles drives me home and I climb into bed. I keep waking up all night. You know, you weren't able to sleep very well that night and because you were in pain a lot um, and that you found it hard to move. I think you were just really groggy and kind of slow and didn't really want to move much and you know, just needed lots of help with things. And um, do you remember at one point driving away and then getting a phone call from you saying that you did, couldn't turn the shower off or something like that and had to come back and help you with that. So I thought that was, um, yeah, that was pretty full on. The next day, everything feels overwhelming. I'm so foggy. I don't even get how bad I am. It's lucky I don't know the extent of my injuries. I pick up the novel on my bedside table. I open it and try to read the first chapter. Try to read the first page. I read the words. I read the sentences, but I can't connect them. The strain of trying to make sense of the paragraphs brings on an intense headache. I love reading. What's happening? Two days after the accident, I go to the police station to give a statement. I tell them the little I remember. I left my house just before 8am. I rode my bike down the hill, under the railway bridge, through the roundabout. That's it. Next I was lying on the road. The officer fills in the gaps. A driver cut the corner. He was on the wrong side of the road. Didn't see me until it was too late. My bicycle T-boned the car. My helmet was bent out of shape from the impact. I get it! Yay! Get it! I get it! I get it! Hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to talk, I want to talk. Yay, I got one! Wait, that's my fork. Yeah. 
so sensitive to noise. It feels like the volume's turned up on everything. The treble's up, the bass is up. Turn it down. We already did it. Turn it down again. No, it will be too Just turn it off, please. Talk quieter. Talk less. Maybe just stop talking. It's not just the noise, it's the focus and concentration needed to decipher the noise. To cut through it, pick out what I need to hear and comprehend. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Excellent. Podcasts are out. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In communities across America, lawns that are brown. So are films. We're just getting started. TV, news radio. Yeah, we couldn't have music on, couldn't have, you know, any television on in the house or something like that. I mean, I just remember, yeah, the kids like just doing the normal thing, had to be quieter. And a week or two after where you were just like, I just can't listen to music. I spend months avoiding music. I dread walking into a room and finding music playing. It doesn't need to be loud. The melody fights with whatever else I'm trying to concentrate on. Lyrics make it worse, more voices to digest. I no longer get that feeling of a good song washing over me and relaxing my mind. Music's always been a big part of my life. Now I'm this annoying party pooper that comes in and turns the music off. My poor kids have to wait until I'm not home to listen. Emerald often asks, Does this hurt your head, Mama? Miles suggests I try listening to some Chopin soon after the accident. He thinks classical music might be good for my headaches and give me something to do. I listen to one song, but I don't even make it through the first couple of bars. I feel like my head's about to explode. I wrench off the headphones. We started watching Parks and Recreation. Um, and you were fine with that. Well, if you want something done in this town, you call Mark Brand. Um, for some reason, the filming of Parks and Recreation and the cutting and, and uh, editing, the pacing of it seemed like you could follow everything, and there was a bit of uh, a logical connection between the characters. Um, but then we started to watch Arrested Development, and you were like, oh, I just don't know what's going on. It's, the, the cuts are too quick. I, I can't figure out... What's the, what the relationship is between the characters, and I, it's giving me a headache. I just can't watch this, um, which was really strange because I didn't see too much difference between the two. And then I guess I looked and saw that Parks and Recreation was often just much longer takes and fewer cuts, and I really didn't wouldn't have picked up on that you know, otherwise. I get headaches all the time, but they don't feel like the normal ones I used to get occasionally. It's a dull pressure that builds quickly if I don't stop what I'm doing. I have an intense urge to get away from the stimulation that's triggered it. The pain's not actually that bad. It's more the sensation of not being able to think or focus or understand. The pressure building. 
I'm sitting in a noisy cafe. I can hear staff at the counter taking orders, the barista shouting out coffees, the other customers. The voices aren't background. They're at the same volume as my friend Tony, who's sitting opposite me. And I can't follow what she's saying. It's all going blurry. My brain's not focusing on what's in front of me. It's taking everything in randomly. Even conversations people have with me need to be straightforward. Linear, simple and not too fast. Best to make them not too deep either. But I still don't know what's going on. I'm too out of it to join the dots. Once I've got a headache, I'm stuck with it for hours. Painkillers don't work. I can't do anything. All I can do is lie on my bed meditating or sit in my garden staring at the big pecan and frangipani trees. Eventually I'll figure out my remedy, but I haven't got there yet. of the episode, we talked about Lake Hartwell Country, a region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. A giant reason for this is the Blue Wall, where the Appalachian Mountains drop suddenly more than 2,000 feet in elevation. Along these precipitous slopes, it rains more than 75 inches a year, creating a verdant rainforest, steep ravines, and as you might expect, lots and lots of waterfalls. This is the Jocassi Gorges one of the most remote areas on the East Coast, with more than 40,000 acres of protected wilderness, two state parks, and a vast network of hiking trails. Here you can find black bears, bald eagles, peregrine falcons, and dozens of rare plants. The water cascading down these slopes makes its way to Lake Jocassi, one of the top scuba diving destinations in the Southeast, thanks to the crystal clear waters. As it happens, the lake also offers some of the best access to waterfalls, which you can reach by boating or kayaking along the lake's 75 miles of shoreline. And if you're going to Lake Hartwell country, you don't want to miss its namesake, Lake Hartwell, which offers 962 miles of shoreline. That's more than the coast of California. It's known for superb fishing and regularly hosts nationally renowned bass fishing tournaments. There's also boating and numerous camping opportunities. Now is the time to start planning your adventure to Lake Hartwell country. Winter offers perfect hiking weather, and the spring whitewater season is just around the corner. Learn more about this unique destination at lakehartwellcountry.com. South Carolina is just right. This injuries made me reflect on what the load on my brain was like before the accident. It's a few weeks before my bike crash, 
I'm on the train going into the city to find my daughter some shoes. I'm on my phone, checking my emails, searching for which shop to head to. My kids are fighting for my attention. We get off at Town Hall in the centre of Sydney. It's Friday afternoon, so it's mayhem. We take forever to find the right shop. You don't need to have had a brain injury like me for this to be relevant. The trauma of my accident can teach us all something about our lives. With the smartphones, where we carry in our pocket a little digital computer that connects us to pretty much everybody on the planet. And you can connect 24-7. So you're now constantly multitasking and trying to do all kinds, juggling all kinds of things. And that tends to deplete uh, the, the, the reserve, the mental reserve, probably some of the uh, glycogen and glucose supplies in the prefrontal cortex that make the brain work. So even though it seems to be something we think is we're good at, we, in fact, are not. David Strayer is a professor of cognitive neuroscience in the Department of Psychology at the University of Utah. I bet most of the people who are listening to this think that they're good at multitasking. That's just the, that's the statistics. But the, uh, the evidence is actually really clearly the opposite. We are not good at multitasking. Our brains tend to just do one thing at a time, even though we have billions of neurons. In terms of our behavior, we're really just doing one thing and then one thing and switching back and forth. And that switching from one activity to another is, is very difficult to do. It's mentally demanding. There are a handful of people who, t- who tend to be much better at it than most. And uh, we kind of refer to those as super taskers. And we found out that, no, about 2% of the population are these extraordinary uh, people who can multitask like we all think we can. When we tried to study that systematically by looking at you know, what happens in the brain and, and, and uh, you know, looking at neuroimaging and EEG studies, you can clearly show the brain becomes kind of overloaded when we try and multitask and that um, we just don't do it as well. My head's full of work. Hi, I'm Jenny Brocky. Tonight on Inside. I'm a journalist at SBS TV. I'm also managing our household, wrangling our kids, they're two and five. We don't have any other family in Australia. My partner's frantic running his arts organisation. I still keep a busy social life. I love late nights out and hectic loud bars, drinking with friends. But after the accident, I can't do any of this. I can't multitask. You are putting uh, heavy demands on uh, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the frontal part of the brain, the most uh, uh, recent developments in terms of the primate's brain that are involved in things like planning and decision-making and problem-solving and working memory and executive decisions, kind of the kind of the, the thinking part of the brain in many respects. Uh, but it's also the part of the brain that's coordinating multitasking. Uh, and when we see people who do uh, and constantly are kind of shifting back and forth between this task and the next over the course of a day, you see that the, those, those areas of the brain become very metabolically active and over time fatigued. Uh, and so if you think about that brain drain, at, at the end of a couple of hours of that, you're just kind of like, you're, 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 you're uh, kind of completely depleted. And so what we're seeing is the 
metabolic energy that's used by that frontal thinking part of the brain uh, is depleted. Um, and one of the best solutions that we found is to, okay, set that aside and go out and walk for a little bit. Uh, you don't then use those prefrontal regions of the brain to kind of try and multitask and you restore those areas. And that's why we see these bursts of creativity after you've set a problem aside for a while. You're, you're letting the brain rest and come back to a more kind of reset. Does it matter where you walk? Probably. So what we're seeing is that um, if you're, would say, walking in a busy urban area with lots of traffic and things you have to interact with, lots of man-made things that have a lots of you know, horns honking and so forth, that's probably not going to be so restorative. It may still have physical benefits in terms of helping the, you know, the, 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 the exercise part. Um, but the best place to do it is in a park or if you can go on a hike in the bush or something like that where you can kind of get away from it all. Um, that tends to be more restorative. Over the last uh, decade, we've seen a really big change in how people live. They're much more tethered to their phones. What my question has been, and there's a number of researchers who are asking, what impact does that change in technology have in terms of uh, how we think, our, our, our social emotional part of the brain, our cognitive mental uh, thinking part of the brain, um, and, and kind of the stress levels. Before the accident, I liked a bit of gardening and camping and hiking, but it wasn't a big part of my life. I didn't own a hiking tent or backpack. I learned to meditate about six years ago, but I haven't done it in ages. I was pretty content with my jam-packed life, and I kept trying to cram more in. When I was knocked off my bike, a car was driving on the wrong side of the road. The doctor said it was lucky I was wearing a helmet. My head could be way worse. But at this point, the focus is on my shoulder injury. Ten days after the accident, I somehow catch a crowded bus in rush hour and walk towards RPA Hospital. I find the fracture clinic and it's clear why the discharge doctor suggested arriving before it opened. It's chaos. There's no order to who's being called. The TV blares in the waiting room. I can't bear it. I try the corridor, but there are two women chatting. It's too much for my head. I retreat outdoors. I sit on a bench and just watch the rain in cars. This is maddening. I haven't learned yet to just sit and be, but I'll be forced to get better at this very soon when these days turn to weeks and then months. It's hours later when I see the shoulder surgeon. First I see his registrar. I record our consult on my phone because I've been struggling to remember stuff and I can't write because my shoulder's in a sling. My head's super foggy. Maybe it's from the endone I'm on for my shoulder pain. Or is it the head injury? I can't concentrate on what people say to me. I'm really struggling to manage the treatment for my shoulder. So what I'll do now is I'll just have a look and see. Okay. So do you have any other medical problems? Um, I've just got the head injury at the yeah. moment. Yeah. And how's that? Do you have any nausea, vomiting still persisting from that? Or no, just um, I can't read or anything. I find like I found it really hard just sitting in the waiting room. Yeah. And who are you? Are you seeing anyone for that? No. No. Did the did the trauma team sort of 
sort you out with anyone to no. see. I'll try and tie you in with somebody then. But we move back to my shoulder because that's the focus. Might be even more severe than the x-ray looks. In fact, I can't really push it down. More severe, she said. Mm. I'll get Dr Smithers in. The register goes off and returns with the surgeon, Dr Chris Smithers. The main issue for you, I think, will be discussing the pros and cons of surgery. Okay. The, we do occasionally operate on grade threes. Okay. Um, but, uh, and, that, and that's more commonly in um, patients who do a lot of o- overhead activity. The surgeon's right. The follow-up x-ray shows a grade three dislocation. My collarbone is completely separated from my shoulder blade. It's not really clear cut. It's not jumping out to me and saying that this definitely needs surgery. Okay, it's not saying that. Okay. He patiently explains Um, that it's borderline whether we need to operate. Part of it's cosmetic. If I can cope with a permanent lump, would he bother? The surgeon pauses. He says he's the same age as me and wouldn't operate if it was his shoulder. I appreciate his frankness. This is information I can follow. It's the book week parade at Billy's school. She chooses Charlotte's web. I glimpse her parading around in her spider's costume that Miles made out of old tights stuffed with newspaper. But I'm overwhelmed by the noises and commotion of the school playground. It hits me like a brick. It's the same when I do the school pick-up or drop-off. I feel scared. Basketballs, handballs, kids running and screeching. Well-meaning parents trying to talk to me. People caring, asking how I am. Can they help? There was just a completely reduced capacity to concentrate and engage. And as much as you tried to hold conversations you obviously reached a limit very, very quickly of how much you could listen. Flicking through my diary, opening it to the date of the accident, it makes my chest tighten. I go rigid. There it is, the 8am exercise class I never made it to. Miles take kids to climbing gym, 12.30 to 4.30, Billy to Sophie's party, 5pm. Dahlia and Miriam for early dinner. The next day, family morning walk or bike ride. Bunnings for garden stuff. Two to four, Billy to Zara's gymnastics party. Then, my diary's blank. I'm forced to do nothing. Until five days later, in my awkward left-hand scrawl, I write, 10am, doctor. A week later, my diary's filled with friends rostering themselves on to help me around the house and with the kids. Miles often works late. I'm blessed to have an army of supporters who feed us, do our laundry, entertain us and keep us sane. One person on this roster was my friend Sarah MacDonald. We met a few years ago when we were new mothers. You could see it in your face and in your expression and in your body that you were wanting to be able to engage as you would expect yourself to, but you were very clearly unwell. Just you needed small amounts of stimulation before you were, you know, just you you just would look very drained, like someone who'd been, you know, concentrating heavily on something for a very long time. 
When I tell Sarah Mack that I'm making this podcast, she suggests I record a conversation with her to get her perspective on what I was like. It was such a layered experience, I think, for you, that it wasn't just that you were physically depleted, but there was so much else going on in terms of doctors not being sure as to how to respond to the injury and your symptoms and then, you know, the emotional aspects of not working and what that meant. I think what that meant for you was very significant. Sarah Mack looked after me and my youngest daughter, Emerald. She'd pick us up from the light rail station near her house so we could come and hang out, drink cups of tea and eat her yummy food. I don't quite know how you handled it (laughs) so gracefully, to be honest because I don't think I would have, I would have felt so locked in by that experience. And I know that you did feel at certain points um, that, but you also took opportunities to kind of make yourself well and and try different things. That's good to hear because sometimes I feel like maybe I was, people saw me as a victim that I was, that I was kind of just, because it went on for so long and I'd get a bit better and then I'd go back again and and I I kind of also had this fear that and I think I still do a little bit that people didn't quite believe me or understand you know that there wasn't mm-hmm. that there was an element of like really because it was such an invisible injury I think you were very good at just kind of getting stuck in there and not getting weirded out by the fact that I was being weird. It's the end of my second week off work. All I can do is sit out in the backyard and stare at the trees. I'm also drugged up on endone for my shoulder. It's an opiate, a really strong painkiller. But my head's getting worse, not better. This is scary. What's happening? No one can tell me. My GP hopes it's still the endone making me fuzzy. But now I can't even read the school newsletter or picture books to my daughter. It's two weeks after I was knocked off my bike and I'm really struggling to be around my boisterous kids. I record a voice memo after seeing my GP so I can remember what she said. I stand in the street shouting into my phone. Dr Jenny Tai, Tuesday, September the first re headaches and head injury she said to just totally rest for a week don't read anything text email just give it a total rest she's not too concerned because the headaches are I gave him a 5 out of 10 in terms of um, strength Um, and she said you can get low level headaches for a few months from mild concussion However, she wants to reassess me in one week. So I need to make an appointment for next Tuesday. Basically, I've got a bruising on the brain and that it will be, it will be sore. And that, um, yeah, she wasn't concerned that it had got worse in the last week. Um, she said that can be sort of a build-up as well. And also written a letter for the police, for me to take to the police so they can charge the driver. I think that's all. Thanks. My 
friend Dahlia invites me to take a break in her quiet apartment at Bondi Beach for the weekend. You were at the time having trouble being around a lot of noise and a lot of people talking. I make a discovery. It soothes my head. The headaches are gone. I can think clearly. The fog is lifting. I thought you actually got better, even though it wasn't very long that you were here. Um, You seemed to have fewer headaches while you were here. And it was just amazing because you would sit and watch the waves for hours. And that was something that most people just don't have the time or the interest in doing. And then after that, you would feel really good. And I think that was something surprising for me, that it would be so quick. We took a lot of walks along the beach, and you would sit and watch the waves, look at the water, and just um, be calm near them. Later, I chatted to Dahlia in her Bondi home. My name is Dahlia Nassar. I'm a friend of yours. We've been friends for about 10 years. And my professional title is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. The waves are constant. They don't make any demands on my brain. I don't need to decipher them. I can just let them wash over my head. You were very fragile. You were, I think, a little scared of people, of sounds, of what they can do to you. You were really... Uh, trying to piece things together but having a hard time. You had a lot of headaches. Everything seemed like an enormous task. You couldn't read. You couldn't watch TV. So things had to be done very slowly and in a very quiet way. I'm super sensitive to conversations around me on the beach. My headache comes back after watching Bondi poses doing too much exercise, some of them even in bikinis. They interrupt my tranquility. You're actually a philosopher of nature, if I can call you that. You can call me a philosopher of nature. Someone actually called me a philosopher of forests or the trees or something like that. I I don't think that's as true because I'm not only interested in forests. Why do you think that staring out at the ocean that weekend helped my brain? The first thing that comes to mind is the importance of our experience of beauty and sublimity in nature. I think it's very few people out there who would deny that um, we really do find something beautiful about nature. And that experience of beauty is a calming experience. It can be also exalting, like it really inspires a lot of excitement. But I think in some ways that experience of beauty makes us uh, feel at home in nature, that there's something about our capacities to experience beauty that cohere with nature. There's some kind of harmony between ourselves and nature. And that is, you could say, what we would call an experience of beauty in nature. One of the philosophers that I've worked on Immanuel Kant worries about people who don't experience nature precisely because it's such an essential experience, the experience of natural beauty and natural sublimity for our sense of our self and um, our sense of connection to the natural world. 
Um, so he thinks, imagine people who aren't able to experience nature. What would that be like for them? And for him, who was writing in 1790, that was an impossible thought, but he still ventured it. And today we can definitely think, yeah, actually, that's quite possible. In fact, most people aren't experiencing nature most of the time. What did Immanuel Kant think might happen if humans were deprived of nature? That we would no longer have a sense of uh, connection to the natural world. The fact that our cognitive capacities so well map onto the natural world such that we experience beauty gives us a sense, oh, we're not just here randomly. The other experience that he talks about is the experience of the sublime, which for Kant is an experience of excitement and fear. I think ultimately in both cases, we'd be missing out on essential characteristics of human nature. Kant says something that I think is super interesting in relation to this. He says, angels can't experience beauty. Animals can't experience beauty. Only humans can. And why is that? Because to experience beauty, we have to have certain cognitive capacities. We have to have sensibility, we have to have imagination, and we have to have understanding. And it's the way that these sensibility, imagination, and understanding work together that gives us the feeling, the experience of pleasure in beautiful things. So I think we'd be missing out on being human in some ways. What was I like to hang out with like when we came back to your apartment and stuff? It was very relaxing, actually, because you were an easy guest in some ways. You needed lots of times to yourself. So I remember you feeling less headachy, less fatigued, just calmer, more centered in yourself um, pretty quickly after um, taking those walks. I still don't make any connection between the power of the ocean to help my head, the refuge I found in my garden, and the concept of nature as a healer. The doctor asks me to keep a record of my headaches, but I struggle to write, so I start recording voice memos on my phone. Yesterday, I got a headache just with the morning... Um, stress of trying to get kids out the door etc and then I was okay but then later on got a headache after uh, writing one text message Billy turned six a few weeks after I was knocked off my bike later we talked about her memories of that time but just if you start playing with the pen, it will make a pick. The microphone's very sensitive, so any noises you make, like picking a pen or clicking your legs, will pick up on the microphone. What do you remember about the time that Mummy was recovering and that I wasn't working? Um, I think you went on a lot of bushwalks. You didn't read much. Yeah, um, I remember you, like, asking me to, like, be quiet. Because like you had, you kept getting headaches as well. Because yeah. Uh, can you remember how you felt while Mummy was recovering? Um. Well, sometimes I felt a bit lonely. 
because you always kept going on bushwalks and you also kept having rests. And um, also Emerald was... Was everyone still having sleeps during the daytime back then? She was, but I found it quite hard to get her to go to sleep because I was supposed to take her in a stroller for a walk around the block and I couldn't push the stroller, so I think she stopped having them. Yeah, because um, yeah, my sister Emily was quite little. Um, I didn't play with her much, so I felt quite lonely as well. Oh, that makes me feel really sad to hear you say that. I'm sorry, Billy. Like, did it feel like a long time and did, were you worried that I might not get better? Well, I knew you'd get better, but it did feel like a long time, but it was like 18 months and that's a year and more than half. It's Billy's birthday party. The invites went out last month, before the accident. A bunch of kids and their parents are descending on our house. Can't cancel. Birthdays are such a big deal for kids. Billy's already had enough upheaval since my crash. So my parents fly over from New Zealand to help. It's an African themed party. Billy gets her African heritage from Miles. He and my mother create an impressive cake with zebras and tigers climbing up mountains of icing. When we made the invites, I imagined a spring party in our enormous backyard. But it rains. We're stuck in our small house, squashed into the living room. Parents and kids and siblings hunker into corners. Super noisy. Pin the tail on the elephant brings a few to tears. I'm almost in tears. Then the rain stops. We run into the garden. My head finally starts to clear. I feel calm being outside. saw Dr Jenny Tai. Uh, she was a bit concerned that I'm getting headaches after being asleep and also just when I'm resting, when I haven't been around any stimulation. Um, she did also say that the endone can, could also be causing some of those headaches So, and I also wanted to come off the endone anyway, but she said it's important to do it slowly. Hi, great-grandma. It's Sarah. Um, I'm sending you a voice email because... I'm not able to send, do emails and uh, things at the moment with my headaches. Uh, I'm just having to take a break from all that. But wanted to say thank you so, so, so much for the colouring in books and necklaces for Billy. They arrived yesterday and she's thrilled. I'm not even sending text messages at the moment. It's so like one word. I think I'm getting there. It's just the head stuff, which is um, taking a little bit of a backward step. But I think... Nothing to worry about yet. It's four weeks after the accident. I'm easing off the endome, but I'm still feeling tired and foggy. Damn, starting to dawn on me. My brain isn't right. When I left the hospital after the accident, the doctor gave me an A4 page of instructions. By four weeks, my head should be fine, it says. Just like that. If symptoms persist, please seek help. I've reached the end of the four weeks and I feel like I'm getting worse. My GP wants to bring in more experts. 
Eventually, I score a cancellation appointment with a neurologist. I catch two trains to Bondi Junction. I feel nervous and excited. It's a relief to finally be getting some answers. Soon I should know what's wrong. I thought this would all be over by now. I keep telling work I'll return in a couple of weeks. I'm back in another waiting room. I sit for an eternity. Well, half an hour feels a lot longer when you can't distract yourself by reading. I eye out the magazines longingly. At least there's no TV. I'm anxious. Is he going to tell me I'll be stuck in this fuzzy headspace? Finally, Dr Ron Granite shakes my hand and welcomes me into his rooms. I'm blowing in through every Brain on Nature was created, written, and produced by Sarah Alley. Olivia Rosenman is the co-producer. Ariana Martinez did the sound design and mix. Jonathan Zenti composed and formed the title track. Other music by JT in the Clouds, Epidemic Sound, and Blue Dot Sessions. Sarah asked me to express her thanks to everyone interviewed for the series. You can find her wherever you get your podcasts and online at brainonnature.com. I highly recommend listening to all of the episodes. This episode was brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Learn more about this unique destination at lakehartwellcountry.com. We'll be back next week.